All right, students, welcome back. This is going to be our Paradiso Lecture 2 on Cantos 1 through 5. So for today, what I've done is I've laid out six of the major questions from the Sphere of the Moon. And so what we're going to do today is ask those questions, identify where those questions are in the text, and then answer those questions in the way that Beatrice does. And then if we want to ourselves engage with those questions, we'll do so during seminar in this upcoming week. So here are the questions. From 197 to 99, if heaven is perfect and above the earth, it cannot be made of matter. But how do I, Dante, move in heaven if I have a body which is made of matter? Question number two, why does the moon appear to have dark spots if it is in heaven and heaven is perfect? Question number three, how do humans take what they see with their senses and then understand what they see with their intellects? And that's from Canto 4, uh, lines 43 to 61, and number two was from 249 to 51. Number four, what makes an oath unbreakable? And what are the parts of an oath? And under what conditions may an oath be broken? 513 to 15. If a vow is broken, number five, by the force of another, why would I be blamed for breaking the vow? 419 to 21. And then bonus, why do souls not long for a higher place in paradise? Use the absolute will and the contingent will in your answer. And that's in Canto 3. I have that, the specific spot, I think 15 through 17, but uh, we'll see that soon. So let's start with number one. If heaven is perfect and above the earth, it cannot be made of matter. But how do I, Dante, move in heaven if I have a body which is made of matter? Well, first and foremost, Beatrice, as we know, uh, condescendingly gives a sigh of pity for Dante. How can you not know these sorts of things? Um, and gives her answer around 103 through 106. 126 in Canto 1. She says, well, first and foremost, what you need to understand, Dante, is that all things in this universe are created as part of a perfect natural order. In fact, there's a very famous uh, metaphor that was famous during the Middle Ages of the idea of God being a perfect clockmaker and the universe itself being a perfect clock. When you think about that, that makes a lot of sense because in order to have a perfect thing created, According to medieval logic, you would need a perfect creator. The only person or thing or concept that could possibly be perfect would be the idea of something which could make something perfect. And the evidence being for this, uh, uh, the evidence being uh, for the existence of this being, being the perfection of that which exists, which I think is a very interesting argument. The idea being, if you find a perfect watch, there must be somebody with the perfect art of watchmaking. There must be a perfect watchmaker. We have a perfect earth. The earth is much more complicated and, uh, than a watch and seems to work. Vegetables grow, uh, streams flow, mount, uh, mountain goats uh, can live and dance about their usual lives. It's a very complicated place. And why does it all work together? The idea seems to be, at least Beatrice says in the medievals believe that there was a perfect creator that made everything. And so you think, well, how does that have anything to do with whether Dante has a body or not? Ah, well, this is Beatrice's weird answer. She says, all things tend, this is very Aristotelian, tend and strive towards their proper harbor, like a, sail, like a boat going to its harbor, like Odysseus returning to Ithaca. Like how fire strains towards the sky. And so... This even applies not only to the lower animals and to vegetables and to plants, but also to animals that have willpower and intelligence, humans. And so the idea seems to be 
that if Dante, even with matter, finds himself in heaven, that that must have been because he naturally tended towards that place. He must find himself here because he was meant to be here all along by his nature, which also you see uh, nested in that argument an idea of being preordained or an idea of fate, that what a human is meant to do is to live out his or her fate, just like a crystal is meant to sort of develop its crystalline lattice structure from its first inception. And she adds in a little extra bit here, too, for those who might question. She says, well, you know, somebody might say, do you have to live out your fate or destiny, or can you change it? And her answer is, um, no, you cannot change that which would be the best end of you, but you can corrupt it. You can choose to miss the mark, as it were. You can twist yourself away from your natural desire. You can either slothfully not work hard enough to achieve it, or you can uh, you know, be twisted by sensual desire and put your efforts into something that does not get you to your proper harbor. Uh, you can fail, is what she's saying. Success is not guaranteed, but what would make you successful is already laid out. All right, cool, great. Number two. All right, we talked about this a little bit already, but I really just want to lay it out for you. So, and I don't know where my question is. I ask, why does the moon appear to have dark spots if it is in heaven and heaven is perfect? Well, Dante tries to give an attempt at this, which we actually know physically would be correct these days. He says, well, if some spots are darker than others, some spots must be denser and some spots must be rarer. Some must be thicker, some thinner. We actually know that to be true now. The moon obviously is made of physical matter. It has craters, mountains. It is an imperfect object. And in fact, since certain parts that are non-craterous are farther from us, they do appear in a different way from how we might imagine. However, Beatrice again sighs, says, mm, uh, not, a, not a very good question, Dante, here in Canto 2, because the problem is you're using matter in your response. And we're in heaven, and heaven is perfect. And if it places perfect, it has no matter because matter is that which is corruptible. And so, hmm, 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 here's the first thing you're wrong about, Dante. Besides that, or the second thing. First, you're wrong because you think that the moon is made of matter. Two, you think there's a such thing as the moon. There's no such thing as the moon, says Beatrice. She says, that which you seem to see as a giant white shining sphere is actually a plurality of bright, shining souls all gathered together in the shape of a sphere. What you think is one is actually many. It's like the argument for, say, a religion being made up of many people within one, um, one faith, or a state or nation, uh, many people that make up one idea or notion. And so she, uh, she explains this. She says, well... Each celestial soul, I have sphere up here, appears in accordance to the brightness or luminosity of the pure souls within. As in, the souls in heaven all have a certain shine to them, so Dante can see them. However, there are no dark souls, there are no imperfect, imperfect ones. The reason we think, or Dante thinks, that he sees darkness on the moon it's because some souls 
are brighter than other souls. And so, just as a light metaphor, that means that, relatively speaking, some would appear dark compared to others, though they would all be light. Okay, very, very interesting. That means some are actually, according to Beatrice here, more perfect than others, accepted and lived by their own nature better than others. Otherwise, there would be no free choice. And humans would be different in quality based on their natures alone, like angels. And that makes perfect sense to me because if you are a human or a being with intelligence and free will, that is what we define as a human, then you have the choice how well you live your life or not. But the only thing you can't necessarily determine, this is something that people debate today, is what makes for a good life. Dante is suggesting that that is already set in stone. Whereas there would be many people today that would argue that there were many ways to live a good life. Though I don't necessarily know, think that they would be disagreeing with Dante, who also suggests that each person has their proper place. Hmm. In any case, here's a nice picture illustrating the idea that the moon is a diversity rather than a unity. This is a picture that appears to be one picture when you look at it, but then when you look closer, you see that it's actually... Uh, a giant Greco-Roman looking uh, sculpture made up of skulls. And so that is essentially the idea behind the moon being a diversity that's actually a unity. That's also the idea, I would say, behind both a religion and a state, just like I said earlier. All right. Very good, very good, very good. Number three. Question three. How do humans take what they see with their senses, then understand what they see with their intellects? Well, this took me a long time to understand. And in fact, we have a great quote here. And because I, I use a much less uh, religious uh, example, I do want you to see exactly what it is Dante has for you here. In lines four, uh, Canto four, lines 37 to 48, he says some rather shocking things. They have shown themselves here, not because this sphere is allotted to them, but to signify the celestial one that is least exalted. And that's him talking about why souls would choose to be in the moon rather than some higher sphere. Speak thus to your understanding is necessary, for it takes from sense perception alone what later is worthy of intellect. For this reason, scripture condescends to your faculties, attributing feet and hands to God and meaning something different. And holy church represents Gabriel and Michael to you with human shape. And the other one who made Tobias Hall. That's a very fascinating series of lines right there suggesting that the reason why scripture would represent an angel with feet and wings and hands and a god with feet and hands would be because that is easy for you to understand by means of your senses but that is not the truth of the concept indicating that that is a first cast approximation if one has say the notion of god as an old man with a beard like zeus that that is a good place to start but if one really wants to understand the concept one's going to have to work a little bit harder to do so. And so, this is how it works. First, a human sees a whole, like when you see a square with your senses. Now, just because you see the square with your eyes doesn't mean that you understand the square. Make sure that you're writing. After you have seen the actual object, the square in this example, 
you then have it represented in your imagination. What you can then do in your imagination is break the object which was a whole into pieces. With a square, what are the pieces that make up a square? Obviously, four lines. You break the square into the four lines, you can then measure each line. That's called analyzing something when you break it apart. When you measure each line, you know the length, not only of each line, but then the total area of the what itself, the square. And then, even though the square looks the exact same, your knowledge of the square is completely different. It is actually completely fulfilled. Going from seeing an object you define as square to understanding that it has a side length of four for each side, understanding then that it has an area of 16, you then have full understanding of that which it is you see, and that is how human knowledge works. In fact, that's why we have the word knowledge. In fact, that's why we have uh, phrases and expressions like, uh, you can't trust your senses, or, or uh, nothing is as it seems. Because in order to understand something, you must analyze it. You can't just look at it. Nothing, including simple squares, is that simple in this universe. All right, good, good, good. So, a human in imagination breaks apart the image, analyzes it to understand each part, one would thus measure each line in a square, for example, then one resynthesizes the original unity with newly acquired knowledge. Now not knowing, or excuse me, now knowing the lengths of the square, one understands the area or the essence of the square. And that is how you come to understand something. All right, very good, very good. Four. Now we're getting to the, I would say, the most relevant to secondary education question. What makes an oath unbreakable? What are the parts of an oath, and what... Under what conditions may an oath be broken? Canto 5, lines 13 to 15. All right, first part. Oaths require willpower used by intelligent beings. Sure, you choose to make agreements with other people. In fact, uh, a philosopher you'll read next year, Thomas Hobbes, uh, as well as another philosopher, John Locke, two great Englishmen, will make the claim that society is based on mutual agreement that there is an initial agreement made by all people. And I think you'll find through the course of your lives that that is very much true. Um, willpower, so says Beatrice, is the greatest gift of God and the power, in fact, most resembling that of God. And if you think about the highest uh, concept or the highest virtue in the, the of the theological virtues, charity or love, this makes sense because one has to choose to give what one has uh, and one uses one's willpower to choose to give charity. Second, what are the parts of an oath? What are the parts of an oath? Well, there are two parts. Just as Aristotle, the great fourth century philosopher, says that all things are made of matter and form, so is there matter and form applied to an oath. There is the matter of it, which is the thing you offer. So if you say, you agree to give me $2 for me to teach you one lesson, then the thing you have offered is $2. The second part of the oath is the guarantee, or the oath itself. And now, Dante, through the mouth of Beatrice, makes a very important distinction here. He says, 
You can change the matter of oaths, but you cannot change the essence of an oath. As in, if you make an agreement or an oath or a promise to somebody, you cannot obviate that promise. All you can do is change what you offer to the person. And so you might think, okay, well, does that mean I can offer less? And the answer is no. In fact, for Dante, he has a very specific equation for this. If you want to change what it is that you give to me, you must still give something to me. And in fact, you must still give me something that is worth half, uh, 1.5 or 3 halves the value of the original thing you offered me. So if you originally offer me $4 for my, educate, for my educating you, you have to give me $6. If you originally offered me $2, you then have to give me $3 instead. So if you want to change an oath, you actually have to give more rather than less. So if you want to get out of an agreement with me, are you allowed to give me less than you first bargained for? Answer is no, no except under one very special condition. If when you made the promise, that which you promised to give me, it would be worse for you to give it to me, then not to give it to me, then if you use your own good judgment, Dante actually has Beatrice say, use the Old Testament, use the New Testament, use the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd means the best guide. The best guide for a human is obviously your what? Your intelligence. And so he says, be intelligent. If you're Agamemnon and you have a daughter named Iphigenia, do not sacrifice her even though you promise to take the Achaeans to Troy. Some things are not worth uh, giving up. Second example was Jephthah. I'm told that Jephthah is very similar to Idomeneus and made a promise very similar to Idomeneus's promise when he came back to, uh, to uh, Crete from Troy. Recall that he made a very terrible promise, which was, I will sacrifice to you, Poseidon, the very first living creature I see when I return home. When he came home, his son was waiting for him on the shore. So he sacrificed him. And then Crete got a terrible plague that we see again during the Aeneas, when Aeneas tries to um, settle there. Terrible. So, the two conditions under which you can change an oath are these. A, you give me more than you originally offered, which I really like. Or B, what you originally offered is worse to give me than not giving it at all. So if you promise me that you're like going to say, like, Mr. Schmidt, for your teaching, I'll... Should nuclear bomb and destroy Australia. And then you're like, Mr. Schmidt, I made that oath. It's guaranteed by the divine. Do I have to keep it? I would say, well, would keeping that oath be worse or breaking that oath be worse? You say, well, I don't really like Australia. And I say, well, do you care about human life? And you say, yes. And I say, well, Australians are humans. You say, okay. And so I say, even though you probably don't have a nuclear weapon, I sure hope not. You probably shouldn't deploy it against other humans, even though you agreed to do so in the first place. And so, I think that's a very, I think that's a very, very strong answer by Dante. All right, number five. If a vow is broken by another, why would I be blamed for breaking that vow? Canto four, lines nineteen to twenty-one. I think that's a fantastic question. Why should it be blamed for the actions of another person? Well, Dante has Beatrice give a fairly simple explanation for this. You would not be blamed. One would not be blamed if one did not in some way will what happened oneself. And so the examples are, of course, the two nuns we met, Picarda Donati and Empress Constance. 
Neither of them chose to leave their convents. They were forced to by external conditions. I believe Empress Constance had to go get married to somebody, and I forget exactly or never knew what happened to Picarda Donati. We could look that up in the notes in the back. In any case, two things that could have happened instead. It is possible that Picarda or Empress Constance could, like St. Lawrence, who was grilled for his faith, or Musius, who cut off his hand because it offended him, they could have stuck by their oaths at their own personal cost. However, you might say to me, Mr. Schmidt, didn't you just say that if keeping an oath results in a worse outcome than or breaking it, that you should break the oath? And I say, yes, that's correct. But here's the second bit, even if you don't accept that. Beatrice says, well, even though these two women were forced to leave their convents, they were at some point in their lives no longer under constraint, and they could have gone back, and yet they chose not to. And so it's not so much that they're being blamed, they are of course in heaven amongst those on the moon, but they didn't do everything they possibly could have to keep their oath. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, because they're not blamed, but there is greater glory that is given to somebody who sticks by what they believe and what they say they'll do no matter what. And that is a point that Beatrice makes. And I would say that that's something that we recognize too, that sometimes there are instances in life where somebody has to keep, where one has to keep one's word or an agreement at, personal, at one's own personal expense. And that when people do that sort of thing, we often consider them incredible people. Because who wants to keep agreements with people that end up being to their own detriment? Nobody, right, exactly. But yet, some people do. And Beatrice and Dante will use examples of martyrs when they talk about that sort of thing. Why would you say that you believe in something if when you say you believe in it, you get killed? Doesn't make a lot of sense unless, I suppose, you believe that some things are of higher value than even your own life, which would be... Well, if you ever hear about or read St. Paul, what he considers evidence for the truth of his faith. Why would I sacrifice my life if I didn't believe there was something more important than I am? And he uses that as proof for there being something more important than he is. I think that's very interesting. I, I think the idea of behind soldiers for states is very similar, too. All right, bonus. Why do souls not long for a higher place in paradise? Canto 3, line 64 to 66. All right, this one, fairly straightforward. A, you already know using the reasoning from the first question that this universe, according to Beatrice, is perfectly ordered. So everybody's already where they are supposed to be. Okay. And so in a perfectly ordered universe, souls can only long for that which is proper to them. Though, of course, Beatrice said you can also sort of develop sinful desires that pull you off track, which seems to be what happened to Dante beginning of the inferno which is why he had lost la via dorita the straight way and was in a dark wood well we have these two concepts that we started talking about two days ago the contingent will and the absolute will a contingent will is your will as a human will the one that you use to make choices but the absolute will is the never-changing perfect will of god that is just like 
a stream that has ever flown. And so what the souls here in heaven say their greatest desire is, is not to have the highest possible place, but to be in the most perfect possible place where the absolute will has determined that they should exist. And so their highest desire is to meld their will with the absolute will and to go to where it is that the absolute will has determined they should be. So more than even wanting high distinction, they want to be at one with the will of God and to take their proper place in the universe. And I would say that that's a very interesting idea and a very different idea from how we look at things socially generally too. Because I, I would imagine that if I were to ask one of you, do you want to find your proper place in the world or do you want the best place in the world, that that would not be necessarily an easy question. Though if you really wanted to add another loop to that question, you might intelligently say, Mr. Schmidt, what could be a better place for me than the place I'm meant to be? And I would say, hmm, that is a very good question. That is a very good question. Because it does seem to be the case that since humans, there's not just one human, humans have very diverse skills, and we need humans to do many things. We need plumbers, garbage men, teachers, doctors, uh, Air Force pilots, uh, mechanics. We need all sorts of people who do all sorts of differing things. And every single one of these people has tremendous value because they spend all day working and doing things that help other people. And so, whether everybody should attempt to move towards the exact same goal in terms of how they act, rather than attempting to achieve diverse goals under the heading of one larger goal, like say, if you're part of a military, you might have different ranks from different people, but you all are attempting to win a war against someone else. Think about the Achaeans versus the Trojans. Well, it is entirely unclear to me whether people are supposed to pursue the same aim or different aims underneath the same auspice. Hmm. Well, in any case, that's the moon, and that's what we've got for that. Moving on to Mercury and Venus next week.